The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good morning and welcome to Money Movers. I'm Sarah Eisen with Carl Quintanilla live on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Coming up this hour, former Federal Reserve Vice Chair Richard Clarida on why the market he says is getting it wrong when it comes to pricing rate cuts. Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer's with us. We'll get his top risks for the year and the geopolitical issues that matter most to your money. Later, the CEO of Williams Natural Gas and the surge we are seeing in prices as winter weather hits the Northeast get to the markets this morning. Uh, tech has been leading along with some consumer names in housing today. 47.69 where we are is basically where we began or closed out uh, 2023 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, topping the tape for us this morning, the biggest week's data point CPI tomorrow. Is the market ready if we do in fact get a hot print? Let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. Certainly the streets sort of bracing for that possibility. A little bit. I, I wonder though, we've had about um, eight months of almost on target core CPI. And when we've de- deviated from them in the last six months, it's been slightly to the downside. I think there's a lot of rational confidence built up in the overall path of inflation at this point. But we're going to micro a- analyze the CPI report for the parts that really do translate directly into PCE, you know, core services, X housing, all that sort of thing. So it feels like, sure, we can get a little bit of a flutter in the bond market if it's a little bit hot, if we have to reprice a march, you know, a, a, a notion March rate cut, something like that. But I don't know if that's if it's a make or break in that sense at this point, just because it's going to take a lot to dislodge the idea that inflation is kind of in the we got this column. Especially, I think, with the inflation expectations really starting to come down. Mike, it's also the start of earnings season and low expectations, right? We're expecting earnings growth, which is something because we didn't get it for three quarters last year. But I think it's come down to like from 8% expectations to 1% over the course of the last quarter. Since the end of the third quarter, exactly. And this has happened a few times in the last couple of years. In fact, at the bottom of the market in October of 2022, you had a similar path. So it seems like the bar is very low. Um, I think people who kind of try to handicap these things are saying, well, we'll probably beat by three or four percentage points. That's usually the routine. Now the question is, does the market already expect that the bar is low and we're going to beat by 3%? In other words, you're going to get the that the price uh, uh, reactions that you would want from uh, from those beats. Not the highest stakes quarter, I don't think, because uh, it wasn't supposed to be a source of huge, you know, uh, contribution to the 12 month forward. So I think, you know, we, we might have to trim looking ahead. It's the back half of 2024. That's where you're supposed to be really making the gains. I think we can lean back on, OK, we, we have an upturn in the overall earnings path. Uh, it's not going to make the market any cheaper. You know, I mean, it's if you're concerned about valuation, it's not going to really help you that much. Uh, to me, the most bullish things about the market are the actual technical behavior and how you had this broad rally at the end of the year of 2023, and you haven't done much yet to disturb the idea that that was something real, that it showed real demand. Uh, we have this two-week pause in the uh, in the market right now. We'll see if that uh, deepens into something else. It'd be hard to believe that's all we need is a 2% setback after going up 17%. Right. When you look at single stock narratives, is NVIDIA now four days, 13%? Yeah. Do anything to the notion that we were going to broaden this thing out? 
it, it questions it a little bit, and I've been questioning it a little bit. And by broadening out, I think what people want is permission not to own a lot of the big seven. But when they want it, when they say broaden out, they don't want the benchmark to run away from them, and they don't want the seven stocks that are thirty percent of it to sort of dominate the, the storyline. So I think that you could have one of them, like Nvidia, you know, going uh, going crazy again. It did nothing since August thirty first. Nothing went sideways for all that time since Labor Day, and then just here with the new chips, it gets recharged to the upside. It's 1.3 trillion market cap. You know, it's not that far below Amazon market cap. So you could argue things are getting a little bit silly again in that one tiny isolated area. Uh, but we'll see. I think in terms of the rest of the tape, huge flows into equal-weighted ETFs over the last month or so. Everyone wants this to happen. They want, <laughs> they want to bet the field against the favorites. I'm just not sure it's going to be uh, that quick or timely. All right, Mike, thank you. Yeah. Mike Santoli, as always. When it comes to the outlook for 2024, Wall Street continues to be divided as to when rate cuts will start from the Fed. You've got Goldman Sachs saying March. Bank of America and Barclays see April as the starting point. Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, and Deutsche Bank eyeing June. And then UBS sometime in the second half. Our next guest is predicting three rate cuts this year and says markets are currently pricing in too much easing. Joining us now is Richard Clarida, Global Economic Advisor for PIMCO and former Fed Vice Chair. Rich, you're not at the Fed anymore. You don't have to do the, the Fed expectations. They say three cuts. <laughs> well, well, that's right. And, and that lines up really uh, with, our, with our outlook. Um, you know, the soft landing runway uh, is, uh, is in sight. Uh, but I think in order to get the six cuts that the markets have priced in, you either need a pretty deep recession that we don't see, or you, or you need to see inflation falling even faster than, than, than we expect. So I, I do think, we do think the Fed thinks they're done. Uh, it's appropriate to start to lower rates as inflation moves towards the 2% uh, target. But the baseline for us would not be six cuts in 2024. When do you see it starting, that process? I think March. I think March is potentially in play, but but really too soon. Um, so I think if the inflation data continues to improve and the economy evolves as we expect, the conversation could begin to engage. I think in, in May or or June. Remember at the March meeting, they won't even have the February data on on PCE True. inflation. So there's not a lot of data to get between now and then. So what is your concern around inflation? Sounds like you think maybe stickier than, than the optimism in the markets right now. Well, I think you have to acknowledge the progress, Sarah. You know, I think uh, the progress on inflation for the last six months is, is definitely there. Um, I do think, uh, you know, to every, everything you care about in life, there are, always, there are always good news and bad news. And I think maybe markets are a little bit relaxed about uh, a situation where inflation is sticky uh, and, and stubborn. Uh, but the data is definitely going in the direction that's favorable for the economy and for uh, the Fed. Um, and, that's, uh, and that's a good place to be, I think, compared to a year or so ago. Rich, how do you square uh, real income growth right now and the spread between inflation and wage growth? Obviously, some uh, renewed um, momentum behind capital markets gains and the decline in inflation expectations. Wouldn't you expect a more confident consumer to drive prices? Well, yeah, you know, there's an old saying, which is don't, don't bet against the American consumer. And we certainly saw that very much in 2023. Um, income gains, uh, we do think, are, are going to shift 
uh, uh, down. The economy grew above trend uh, last year, so that was great. It was unexpected, but, but slower uh, uh, growth. And you know, there was a big pile of accumulated excess saving from all the checks that got sent out in 2020 and 2021, and most of that has been spent uh, through. Uh, but the real wage gains are, are welcome, certainly, uh, to workers. And, you know, Carl, one thing the Fed's going to have to be considering is, are those wage gains consistent with the 2% inflation objective? Do you buy the notion that corporates are hoarding labor or at least are in a better position having uh, their interest expense and their uh, down and their profits up in the course of this tightening cycle that they can afford to have unemployment rise a little more gradual than in prior cycles? You know, I think that is there. Uh, we have seen that in the past, that companies do hoard labor, especially when it's scarce and expensive uh, as, it, as it has been. That's why historically, you know, the labor market data tends to be a lagging uh, uh, indicator. And of course, the other thing now is we have a pretty big divergence between the household survey and the payroll uh, survey, uh, and which is, again, not, not all that unusual uh, as, as well. So I think the labor market is slowing. Uh, that's, that's certainly positive job gains are welcome, uh, but we are getting into the range uh, where we do need to be watching it closely. So, Rich, are you guys bearish on bonds if you think that the market has overdone it on pricing rate oh, cuts? Oh, no, no. No, we're perhaps not surprisingly at PIMCO. We're, we're bullish on bonds. We think valuations are attractive. What we have highlighted is that getting a lot of your bond exposure at the very front end of the yield curve, uh, we think there are better opportunities, opportunities in credit, uh, opportunities uh, uh, globally, and, 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 and certainly the returns last year uh, were, were quite healthy, and we think with more, more uh, to come. But in terms of valuation, we do think mm. technically the front end of the curve is a little expensive right now. Right. Okay. So there's where you're expressing that. Yeah. My other question to you is on, on recent Fed communication. Yeah. A few of them, Lori Logan mentioned this, I think Michelle Bowman mentioned Concerns about financial conditions loosening, which we've certainly seen. Stocks are up, bonds are up, dollars weaker, and whether that risks sparking inflation again. Are those valid concerns? I, 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 I would put it this way, Sarah. I, the Fed in November indicated that tighter financial conditions were, were doing some of their job for them to, to, to slow uh, demand. Uh, since the November Fed meeting, financial conditions have eased. What what President Logan uh, said um, in her speech recently um, is that they do need to consider that if financial conditions continue to ease, um, then it is less likely that inflation falls to the zone that they want. So I think we're not at that point uh, yet, but it's certainly, I think, appropriate for the Fed to be following uh, financial uh, conditions as they assess uh, you know, the, ch the chances that inflation eventually return to target. And really quickly, when do you think QT ends? Well, I think QT continues for the rest of this uh, calendar year. Again, President Logan indicated that at some point this year they may, they may, they may do a taper on QT where they're reducing the pace. But, but we do expect QT to, in some form, to continue throughout the rest of, of this year. Okay, so tapering is back. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that word? Uh, <laughs> yes. And, I, of course, they want to avoid another taper uh, tantrum, tantrum, that's for sure. Well, it yeah. would be the opposite, right? The market wants well, them to taper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, Rich. Thank you. Always thank valuable you. to speak with you. Richard Clarida, former yeah. Fed vice chair. 
Let's turn to Boeing this morning. The CEO acknowledging the company's mistakes as investigators look into the 737 MAX issue. Our Phil LeBeau joins us ahead of a very big interview this afternoon. Hi again, Phil. Hey, Carl, I think when we talk with Dave Calhoun, the message we will hear from him will be similar to what we heard yesterday when he talked with about 8,000 employees here at the Boeing Renton facility. This is where they build the 737 MAX. Three shifts, about 8,000 employees here. Uh, and if you heard any of the audio or any of his comments yesterday, you can tell the level of significance that Calhoun, the management team, and the employees take with what happened on Friday night with Alaska Airlines. Dave Calhoun saying yesterday, we need to acknowledge our mistake. Every detail matters. Looking into the details behind what happened with that door plug that was ripped off the Alaska Airlines plane, that's part of what the internal safety group here at Boeing will be looking into. By the way, that group was put in place after the MAX crashes. Uh, so it's been in place. They know what to do in terms of reviewing the work history. And they're going to be working in coordination with the NTSB investigators, as they always do whenever there's any kind of an accident, as well as the FAA, which, by the way, continues to ground all of the 737 MAX 9s that have that door plug, 171 of them. There are not final rules established yet for the MAX 9 inspections. What does that mean? That means that Alaska and United cannot yet start doing the inspections and any maintenance that may be needed to be done on those uh, door plugs. Once those rules are approved, then they can do that. Then theoretically, those planes can go back into service. Don't miss our exclusive with Dave Calhoun coming up on the exchange. Lots to discuss with him, not just about this incident, but the broader topic, Carl and Sarah, of what we've talked about for some time, about the culture here at Boeing as it continues to ramp up production of the MAX and at the same time facing questions about quality control. Is there ever a consumer impact of this, Phil? I mean, do, do consumers ever get worried about taking Boeing planes or anything like that? I don't think so. I think, are, are there people who are not crazy about flying? Absolutely, in general. It doesn't matter if it's a Boeing, Airbus, whatever it might be. Do I think there are people who will say, wait, that flight is a Boeing Max? I'm not going to take that. Look, that has been disproven time and again mm -hmm. over the years. Whenever there's been an accident with a particular aircraft, there may be some immediate... Ew, people go, wow, but, you know, no, no, nothing where it stops people from flying a particular aircraft. Yeah, I was just curious. Thanks, Phil. Really appreciate it and looking forward to your interview. Phil Bell. United States versus itself, the Middle East on the brink, and a partitioned Ukraine. Those are just some of the major risks that Ian Bremmer sees dominating geopolitics this year. He's going to join us next to discuss. Natural gas prices are up roughly 20% in a month. CEO Williams will join us to discuss where demand goes from here as some of these winter storms sweep the country when we come back in a moment. So many teenagers waiting to be adopted from foster care feel like their lives are over. They've given up hope of having a permanent home and are terrified of aging out with no support system. Right now, more than 113,000 children are waiting to be adopted in the U.S. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is dedicated to finding them the right family before it's too late. Learn how you can help at davethomasfoundation.org slash learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. 
Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Watching shares of Apple down again this morning. Another downgrade, this time from Redburn Atlantic, taking the stock down to neutral, saying the valuation is played out. And there's little upside for the iPhone over the next few years. The firm also warns some underwhelming results could be coming this quarter. Apple's been under pressure lately, especially from the street. This is the third downgrade in just 10 days after shares fell more than 6% the first week of the year. I I read the report. I don't know if you did. I I thought it was interesting just because they started with their bull thesis, which they put on place in, in 2020, that services, for instance, demanded a higher valuation, that its, that its products does, d- demanded a higher valuation. And basically now it sees Apple as having received that and then some, just fully priced. Yeah. Three in 10 days uh, does, is, is a bit of a trend, which we've been watching, obviously, since that first Barclays note. Meantime, Eurasia Group's out with their list of top risks for 2024. The presidential election takes the number one spot, followed by the conflicts between Israel, Hamas, Ukraine and Russia, and, of course, AI, which they argue can't be properly governed in the near term. Joining us this morning, Eurasia Group's president and founder, Ian Bremmer, is with us. Ian, great to see you. Good morning. Absolutely. Good to see you guys. The Voldemort of years kind of says it all at the top of your report. Um, talk about, I guess you mentioned three wars, the two that we, we just mentioned, and then you sort of frame it as the United States versus itself. I do, uh, because like Israel, Hamas, and like Russia, Ukraine, the adversaries in the United States do not share basic facts. Um, they don't share basic worldview at all. Uh, and there's no effort for diplomatic diplomatic compromise. So in that regard, especially given how important the United States is for the rest of the world, we're still the most powerful country. We've got a great economy. We've got we spend more on defense than like the next 10 countries combined. But our democracy is the most dysfunctional of the G7. All of the other rich democracies are able to hold a free and fair transition. Um, of power. And in the United States, uh, that the view is that that is getting delegitimized. Uh, so, yeah, 2024 is not the year you want to hold this election for the U.S. right now. Right. Uh, interesting chart in the FT this week about media distrust. And to your point, uh, much more uh, much more pronounced in the United States than, say, the U.K. or France. Uh, I am curious whether or not you think there's been enough done to put in reinforcements in the case of a contested election. I don't think so. Uh, And again, I wish it was just the media. It's not. It's uh, views in the U.S. of the church, of the judiciary, um, of 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 the executive, of Congress. They've all gone down. And, you know, Biden was supposed to be fixing this. And certainly he I think he's trying. But the fact is that the U.S. perceptions of these institutions has only gotten weaker. And when I talk to the heads of the U.S. intelligence community, they tell me they're much more worried about um, the, the ability to defend U.S. democratic institutions and the election itself uh, for malfeasance internally as well as externally. They're more worried about that than they are about Russia or they are about China. It's the risk at home. I I think that that speaks volumes. The fact that Trump's own former secretary of defense says that this man would be a serious threat to democracy, that should be the most I mean, in a a well-functioning democracy. That would be the most important thing you're talking about. It's not in the United States because American democracy has been delegitimized because a majority of Americans no longer believe in these institutions. How, how, does, how does that make the world unsafer, right? A strong U.S. is good for the world, right, Ian? 
I think that's true not only for America's allies, but you know, even I just got back from Beijing, and even talking to senior Chinese officials, they don't want the Americans in chaos. Uh, they, they want the Americans to be more pliant, uh, but but they they don't want the U.S. falling apart. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I mean, Trump sees Zelensky as an adversary, so if he comes in and he pulls all the funding. And the Ukrainians are not prepared to accept uh, a Russian-led partition of their country. Well, um, they're going to be desperate, and they're going to be countries like Poland and the Baltic states and the Nordics uh, that will will be uh, incredibly threatened by that reality. While other countries like Hungary, very close to Trump, Italy, the prime minister, very close to Trump, will be saying, "Well, come on." We don't want to spend all this money. It's too expensive. Let's normalize. Let's get back to working with the Russians. That I don't think Trump will pull the U.S. out of NATO, but I think NATO will face an existential crisis. It will start to fragment. And I can give you examples like that for U.S. decoupling with China, with a U.S. hard line against the Iranians and massive support for Netanyahu. All of those things. When you talk to American allies around the world, they are all of a piece. Deeply, deeply concerned about where U.S. political institutions and democracy is headed. You mentioned Beijing, and one of your uh, points in your report is that any any appearance of green shoots in a China recovery should be met with skepticism. Yeah, uh, the the willingness of the Chinese to go big in response to all of their structural economic challenges in real estate, bad debt, local governments, corporate debt. You know, lack of、uh, animal spirits and consumer sentiment.、Uh, Xi Jinping is not having any of that, so it's all very incremental. That's bad news for the markets. The good news is the Chinese really do not want a crisis with the Americans now, not in this environment. So they want to manage difficulties, and even on Taiwan, that's why the Chinese have decided to lean in to finally do a whole bunch of direct military to military engagement. With the Americans, Biden facing political challenges in the U.S. and two big wars in the Middle East and Russia, Ukraine, he doesn't want a crisis with the Chinese either. So the most important geopolitical relationship in the world, U.S. and China, looks better managed in 2024 than it has for the last three years. That is、uh, one of the silver linings of the report this year. What about Taiwan's election coming up in a few days? What do investors need to know about the significance here? Well, first, it's a coin flip. It's slightly more likely than not that William Lai, the vice president, will win, maybe 55 percent. If he does, certainly the Chinese will respond negatively. That will mostly focus on trade relations with Taiwan, so it's going to hurt the Taiwanese economy.、Um, it could lead, at the worst, to maybe the Chinese deciding to inspect some ships, and so you could have more military confrontation between China and the U.S. But that will be overstated in the markets again. Because the Americans and the Chinese understand where the red lines are on Taiwan,、um, and and they probably understand that better than any other issue that has defined the conflict in the U.S.-China relationship over the past couple generations. So、uh, the idea that it will head to direct military fighting in 2024 is virtually zero, and I get that question from journalists almost every week. That will be overstated by the markets. Ian, we didn't get to AI, but that's、uh, maybe we save that for its own self-contained segment、uh, in the coming、Fair、days.、Enough. It's good to see you. Thanks. You too, guys. Be good, Ian Bremmer. Let's take European markets slightly lower this morning as investors await tomorrow's big 
CPI number in the U.S. The big action today is in the Asian markets. China's blue chip CSI 300 falling half a percent this morning, dropping to its lowest level since February 2019. Japan, on the other hand, continues to boom. The Nikkei closing at 34-year highs, fresh highs here, as tech shares edged higher and a weaker Japanese yen has boosted exporters. Part of the surge was also attributed to BOJ tightening expectations, which continue to fade. While a hike is still on the table, investors expect the move to be very modest. There was some wage data that was disappointing in Japan, Carl. And, and part of what the BOJ has been trying to do by staying in these negative rates world is, is stimulate wages along with the inflation they've been seeing just when they started hinting that they're going <laughs> to come out of that policy. The data is getting a little bit weaker. 1990. That's, that's going back a bit. Uh, pretty interesting. Meantime, the Consumer Electronics Show is underway, and AI technology is a major focus this year, as you might expect. Our Julia Borston joins us this morning from Las Vegas with some details. Hey, JB. Hi, Carl. Well, here in Las Vegas at CES, yes, there are giant translucent TVs and foldable phones, but this year AI is everywhere. Even these posters like this one of a person behind me, that's AI generated. That's not a real person. And across the convention center, generative AI assistants and tools are incorporated into every sort of gadget. Samsung unveiling its AI companion robot called the Bali, which interacts with other smart devices in your home. It can project pictures and videos on your wall can even check on your pets when you're not there by sending pictures of them to you. Samsung also has a new AI refrigerator, which tells you what's inside. It tells you the expiration dates and suggests recipes based on the ingredients you already have. It even enables you to order the ingredients instantly from that refrigerator that you don't have. Now, this year, there are more AI-enabled cars and tractors than ever, with Intel just last night announcing a new AI chip customized for vehicles as Intel battles with NVIDIA and AMD to power the Internet of Things. Mercedes is here showcasing an in-car generative AI assistant. How about I take you on a unique Vegas adventure? The operating system is designed to be empathetic and to respond to the mood of the user. We're bringing the system to be way more natural. It's going to sound like a human. It's going to be predictive. We can actually give you suggestions on where you want to go, turning on the seat heating, making you more comfortable in the car. And L'Oreal is here. It became the first beauty company to have its CEO keynote at CES. L'Oreal is an AI-powered beauty advisor and hair coloring tool and virtual makeup try-on. Now, not all the AI here was ready for primetime. Meta showed us its Ray-Ban glasses that can record photos and videos. But the new AI tools that Zuckerberg announced that they'd have are not ready to demo just yet. Guys, back over to you. Julia, I just got to ask whether or not um, the use cases that you've been witnessing in person sort of match your expectations. We've been talking about this for a while now. You know, I was here last year. Everyone was talking about AI, but it had just been a couple of months, um, you know, just really not that much time since ChatGPT had launched. So people were talking about AI, but we didn't see the use cases yet. I think it's interesting just to see how you could really add an AI assistant into anything, whether it's a car or a washing machine or a refrigerator. <laughs> um, to me, the little robot was the most fun thing, the idea of it rolling around your house, maybe not being too intrusive, doesn't look like look like a robot, it's just a little ball. I don't know. 
that one seemed like a, a fun one. And interestingly, the Samsung devices, those are going to to launch pretty soon. The, the Mercedes um, option, that's going to be a little bit further out, more like 2025. So I think, look, it's all about the AI assistance, generative AI, um, but certainly more in reality than in principle like it was last year. I mean, it's fun to see. Fun to see you demo some of those, especially like the consumer products that come and announce new innovations. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Time now for a news update. Bertha Coombs has that for us. Hi, Bertha. Hi, Sarah. Hunter Biden departed Capitol Hill this morning after a brief surprise appearance at the House Oversight Committee meeting. His attendance caught committee members off guard as they prepared to take a vote on resolutions that recommend the president's son be held in contempt of Congress. He's accused of defying a subpoena to testify behind closed doors in his father's impeachment inquiry. The younger Biden has offered to testify publicly. The Al-Qaeda-linked Islamist insurgent group Al-Shabaab has reportedly seized a United Nations helicopter. According to the Washington Post, the group apparently set the helicopter on fire and captured an unknown number of crew workers after it made an emergency landing today in Somalia. And former President Donald Trump is asking to speak at closing arguments in the $250 million New York civil fraud trial against him and his business. A source tells NBC News the judge in the case has, quote, conceptually approved the request, but Trump's attorneys still need to meet certain conditions before it can happen. The reply to the court is due today. Carl? Bertha, appreciate that. Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, we'll get a check on natural gas prices this winter as the storms begin to pick up. The CEO of Williams is going to join us. The company handles one-third of the nation's natural gas supply. Plus, the communication services sector hitting a fresh 52-week high right now. Meta and Alphabet powering those gains. We're back in just a moment. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. A couple hours into trading, uh, very tight ranges. We're hovering pretty much near break-even levels for the year-to-date on the S&P. Let's get post-to-post with Bob Bassani. Bob? Uh, modest gains on the S&P today, but we do have some very interesting news that's going on. We've got a couple of dividend gainers here. Uh, Lenore had a great year. Remember last year, up like 25%, huge run towards the end of the year. The problem is their dividend of 37.5 cents looked pretty measly, you know, below 1% as the stock was rising. So now they've raised it to 50 cents. So that's $2 a year. And you can see here, that's about a 1.3% dividend yield here. That's one of the biggest gainers, believe it or not, on the S&P. Pretty modest today, but uh, 2.5%, one of the biggest gainers that are out there. There's a bunch of mean reversion trades that have sort of stopped working. This always happens. So remember these the cruise lines, uh, Norwegian and Carnival, they just had a great year. They were up, Carnival was up like 80% last year. Uh, the first two days, it dropped like, you know, 10%. It went down to like $16 uh, because that's a mean reversion trade. You, you, you sell the stuff that's done really well and buy the stuff that's done really lousy. And now it's bounced back again here. So these mean reversion trades don't last very long. The, the fundamentals eventually take over. Uh, and it's come back along with uh, Norwegian uh, Cruise Line. Same with some other stocks. Home Depot had a little of this, too. 
uh, at the end of last year. They had that big run. Remember, every day I kept putting it up here. It went from like 280 to 350 in November and, uh, and December. It was up like 25%. And then it dropped to like uh, 336, 337 in the first couple of days. Again, people just selling big gainers over the last couple of months. And now it's come back. Again, these mean reversion trades don't last uh, very long, very, very short periods. So we're all waiting for a Bitcoin uh, spot Bitcoin ETF to uh, to start trading uh, and be announced. Uh, but here we have one. Here's the biggest one that's out there right now that the, uh, the ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF, uh, the biggest one uh, that's a, a futures ETF that's out there in the Bitcoin space. This has attracted a little over $2 billion in assets, and it started trading in October 2021. So a lot of people trying to figure out what impact or what kind of money might a spot Bitcoin ETF bring in. This was quite a sensation when it started a little over two years ago. We'll see what happens. We're expecting expecting some kind of announcement today. Sarah, back to you. What, which is better, a Bitcoin spot ETF or futures ETF? Well, they both can interact differently with each other, and investors can use them in different ways, just 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 like you use other kinds of uh, uh, spots and future uh, uh, um, uh, stocks, for example, in different ways. Um, I think that people are largely going to be very, very happy to have a simple Bitcoin ETF structure, just like what happened with gold. I'm using gold as a parallel. In 2004, gold ETFs started, and people who kept gold physically in their basement uh, largely abandoned that. A lot of them, they still do. You obviously can keep them in your basement, but there's a safe, secure way to own it. Bitcoin ETFs had the same problems. They had problems with custody, they had problems with people forgetting their passwords and things like that. Uh, and I think that's going to solve a lot of the problems that are out there. Again, I'm still not convinced Bitcoin has a strong use case overall. Philosophically, it's a good question. Do people want to do it? This is much safer investment vehicle to use than the current vehicles that are being used. Got it, Bob. Thank you. Okay. Bob Pisani. Let's turn to energy. Natural gas prices have spiked over the last two weeks as colder weather sets in across the U.S., helping claw back some of the losses from the past year and a warmer than expected start to the winter. You can see the chart there down more than 15 percent since early 2023. Our next guest handles roughly a third of all natural gas in the U.S., joins us now with his outlook. Let's bring in William CEO Alan Armstrong. It's good to talk to you, Alan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Glad to be here this morning. What are your expectations for prices this year? Well, you know, uh, we, we've seen a huge spike in 22. We saw prices go down uh, last year by a decline of about 60 percent. And um, and we've kind of the prices have moved down below the price of, of the cost of marginal production. So the, the higher cost production and we starting to we're starting to see that supply taper off now. Um, and, and at the same time, we're starting to see demand pick up against the fundamentals. In other words, on a weather normalized basis, we're seeing demand start to pick up uh, pretty strong. In fact, last year we saw natural power demand uh, go up by about uh, 6%. So in other words, natural gas fired power mm. demand went up by about 6%. And we're seeing LNG growth. We'll see a little bit of LNG growth here in 24. And then a big pickup on LNG demand growth in 25 as a lot of the new facilities come on. So, you know, the, the producers right now are looking forward to 25. You can see quite a bit of contango uh, in the market with prices on the strip picking up by about 25 percent from 2024 to 25. So producers are kind of holding their breath right now uh, through this period of low prices 
and but looking forward to the pickup in demand that's coming in 25, largely associated with both power generation and with uh, LNG export. So with those new facilities in 2025 coming online, clearly that helps. What does global demand look like over the coming years for U.S. LNG? Yeah, you know, right now it's it's obviously a market that's short, and you can see that from the prices and certainly from the big, the large differentials in price that exist between U.S. Uh, wholesale prices versus international prices. And so that that is an unmet demand. And obviously, as we produce more supplies here in the U.S., uh, we will uh, start hopefully see that moderate a little bit, and we'll see U.S. prices pick up a little bit. So it's expect those two to come together a little more. But right now, the pricing, international pricing, certainly says that there's more demand for U.S. natural gas. Do you, uh, do you think there are going to be regions of the country where we start to talk about shortages and, and extreme price moves to the upside? Yeah, you know, and the challenge is really this. It's not that we don't have enough supplies. We have plenty of natural gas supplies. In fact, very low-cost natural gas supplies here in the U.S. The challenge is the infrastructure. Since 2010, we've seen natural gas demand, total natural gas demand pick up by 60% from 2010. But we've seen pipeline infrastructure only get built out by a 30% growth. And storage, which is really critical if you think about the need to back up uh, intermittent renewals and the need to be able to pick up when LNG exports uh, pick up, we've only seen storage increase by 12%. So those are two critical infrastructure components that are way lagging behind uh, the natural gas demand growth and the supply growth. And as a result of that, you see these regional price uh, spikes, and we're going to continue to see a lot of them. We saw gas in the Rocky Mountains last week, even though wholesale gas in the Henry Hub was well below $3. We saw gas hitting $6 for the Western markets last week, purely on the backs of lack of infrastructure uh, available here in the U.S. And that relates to, to our permitting woes that you hear so much about here in the U.S. What, what sort of policy decisions should we be watching over the coming years? And do you expect them to happen at a national level, say in the presidential cycle, or is it more local permitting issues that impact you the most? Well, it's a great question, Sarah, because it is actually both. You know, we were struggling to build pipeline capacity into New England, which is now having to burn fuel oil, uh, which is uh, 2.3 times more emissions being emitted and obviously twice as much in terms, at least twice as much in terms of cost, sometimes three times as much. And so, um, you know, that was during the Trump administration, even that those uh, pipelines got broke. So it's not just a, a federal level issue. It is also local. But I do think that, you know, the American public needs to start really holding people accountable that are stopping pipeline construction because it is both increasing our emissions here in the U.S. and it's increasing the cost to the to the consumer in a dramatic fashion. And really quickly, you've been kind of active on the deal front, Alan, bolt on M&A. Are you is that still is this still a ripe environment for that? Are you still looking in the storage area? Yeah, you know, storage is is a way underdeveloped resource and infrastructure from our perspective. And so we have gone after that. Uh, we picked up the hard tree storage here right at the end of the year. And that will make us the largest 
storage provider to the LNG markets. And we've seen that as a key strategic issue for quite some time. So we're really excited about that acquisition. And we bought uh, some storage in around the Dallas area, Dallas, Texas area last year about this time because we saw the uh, critical need for storage in that market associated with backing up renewable power in the Texas market. Alan Armstrong, really good to get an update on the on the business and the market. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Still to come this morning, the CIO of Raymond James is going to join us. He'll break down why he still expects a recession this year and his bull case for small caps when we're back in a moment. Welcome back. Markets a little muted today as the street awaits the key inflation data tomorrow, CPI, PPI on Friday. How will that new data shape the outlook for the Fed and for investors who right now are still pricing in about a 70 percent chance the Fed starts cutting rates in March? And with the S&P, Dow and NDX all within a stone's throw of all time high, should investors start looking to things like small caps, which have yet to see as dramatic of recovery? That's with us here at Post 9 this morning is Raymond James, CIO, Larry Adam. Larry, it's great to have you. Great. Thank you for having welcome, me. Welcome, welcome. Um, so you do think there are recession risks, but you do think it'll be mild compared to prior cycles. I do. I think we still have a recession starting in the second quarter, ending in the third quarter. Very short. When you look at the amount of growth that's going to be subtracted, it'll be less than a half a percent. In fact, I think we're closer to a having a soft landing than we are actually to having an average recession. So I think we're going to have one. The data is starting to show that. Employment conditions are starting to, you know, soften a little bit. Some of the service data is starting to weaken. You know, restaurants, ho- hotels, even airfares. I mean, people are shocked when you look at airfares are down 5%. Why are they down? Because demand is starting to slowly roll over. And I think what's really critical is that if, if employment goes to zero, if you and I all spend the same, over the next year, that's a recession, right? Because after inflation, we're buying less. So we're not looking for a really significant recession to unfold. All right. On corporate earnings, you are in the sub-240 camp, though, right? Yeah. Well, we think corporate earnings this year will be at 225 for the S&P 500. Currently, consensus at 245. Keep in mind that consensus usually falls around 4% during the year, so that gets you down to 235. The difference between 235 and 225 for us is the fact that we see a mild recession. Revenues will be challenged. And I don't think you're going to see an expansion of margins, I think they'll say stable, slightly contract. So if you expect a recession and weaker than consensus earnings, why then would you like small caps? So I think when you look at small caps, they have been at such a discount right now. So I look for things that will unleash that value. And historically, when the Fed starts to cut, that's when you see small caps outperform. When you look at where we are in the cycle coming out of a recession, likely the second half of this year, that's when you see small caps outperform. And I think one thing that's really critical and I know you've seen this before, but if you add up all of the stocks in the Russell 2000, it actually equates to like a Microsoft or an Apple, which means it doesn't take a lot of money flowing there to actually get those stocks to get some momentum. Uh, yeah, indeed. I think it's $3 trillion for the Russell and whatever it is for the Mag 7, right? It's, pretty it's amazing. Crazy. Yeah. Um, you, you like AI and tech. You like industrials on the reshoring. You like healthcare. Are those things not overbought, you think, in the medium term? No, I think let's just focus on technology as an example. Everybody thinks that it's expensive. Two things on that. If you go back over the last two years, the Nasdaq's actually down 4%. Earnings are up 8%. So by that definition, valuations are actually more attractive. When you look at the PE right now, sure, it looks expensive, but I think that fails to take into account that systematically, technology tends to outperform quarter after quarter after quarter. You start to factor in those beats over time, 
I don't think it's as, as expensive as people think it is. My favorite part of your note is the rotisserie economy because I, we've heard the waiting for Godot recession. <laughs> but you, what, what, what do you mean? Rotisserie. So rotisserie in the sense of why I think it's going to be mild is because there are some areas that have been on fire. Think travel and leisure, right? I think that starts to roll over because you're seeing it in the data. I think some of the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy think about the housing market. Think about appliances, manufacturing. I think we're at the cusp of seeing that actually bottom. And I think that'll start to re resurge uh, coming, coming in the second half of this year. But what about the lagged impact of rate hikes? We got a lot of them in a short period of time. Where does that show up? I think that's one of the reasons why we think you're going to see a recession, because the consumer, for the most part, hasn't really felt higher interest rates because they had all that excess savings, right? They really could spend a little more. But now that they actually have to go to banks and actually pay interest, I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing that softness. You're seeing some pushback on behalf of consumers, and I think that's why we see that mild recession. Yeah, that's why loan growth will be such a big story on Friday. Absolutely. Uh, at the banks. Larry, thanks. Good to see you. Good to see you. Larry Thank Adams. you. When we come back, the software doom loop, what recent CEO changes at Twilio and Match mean, as well as layoffs at Unity, about the overall, what they tell us about the overall industry. We're back in a moment. We're seeing a wave of layoffs to start 2024, especially in software at Unity and Twitch, along with some CEO changes at Twilio and Match. What does it mean for the sector's long-term growth outlook? Deirdre Bosa has that for us. In today's tech check, wouldn't say it's broad in terms of the layoffs, Deirdre, but it does tell us some things. Yeah, and it, you know, it's more evidence that the state of software is complicated. It always has been. On one hand, there's signs of a comeback, like recovering revenue growth and multiples. AI, of course, a new tagline, but that is from peak levels. There's a broader question here, and that is, has software permanently re-rated instead of a comeback? Are we in a new normal? CEO replacements and layoffs that these once software darlings, you mentioned them, Twilio and Unity in particular, that is complicating the recovery story. And a few longer term charts that we're going to show you, they tell us how far the sector has fallen. The conventional Wall Street wisdom is that the 2022 software slump, it was driven by the Fed and interest rates. There are, however, deep fundamental issues that play here within the sector as well. This is a chart that shows you the revenue growth rate for a basket of software names, including Adobe, Microsoft, Datadog, Snowflake, and others. You can see that it peaked in 2021 at around 50%, and it isn't expected to break 20% in the foreseeable future. So this would be the new normal. B of A sums up the challenges in the sector as such. It's prone to hype, overvaluation, promotional management teams, non-GAAP, slash incomparable between company metrics, high stock-based comp, and is home to cringe-worthy conference calls. We've all been on a few of those. I would also add here that there's been the commoditization of the once hottest, buzziest software products like Zoom and Slack, and this idea that mega caps, they can do it cheaper at scale, and they're good enough. On the positive side, though, the software reset, or the sassacre, as I've heard some in the Valley call it, that could provide new opportunities. Software could yet be the sector with the most interesting M&A prospects and new listings. The HPE Juniper Networks deal that you guys covered, that's partly about software and about two legacy tech companies combining to create a better AI proposition. The journal reports that a $35 billion deal between Synopsys and Ansys could be next. And keep in mind that when the IPO market reopens, we are likely to get another wave of investable software names, this time with AI features and business models. So don't count it out, but this new normal could be an opportunity just at a 
far lower level than what we've seen over the last few years. Yeah, even as you're talking, Dee, uh, Fortune got a copy of this uh, leaked Salesforce memo in which they are pausing all hiring in technology and product divisions that includes Slack. It's going to be interesting to see right. how they grow without adding to headcount, even if they don't uh, retrench further. Right. And, and I think that's all in line with these expectations coming down. And that's why, you know, some on the street believe that this is a really interesting sector after a few years of being sort of down in the dumps of these growth rates really coming back down. So there's also always, of course, that AI underpinning. We may not get to the monetization of that for some years yet, but that could create sort of a new wave. But for now, it feels like we're kind of resting at these levels, 20% growth rate versus the 50% that we got used to in the few oh, yes. years during the pandemic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we remember what it felt like to come down from those levels. Uh, Dee, thanks. Uh, Deirdre Bosa on Tech Check today. Meantime, uh, market's clearly on a holding pattern ahead of CPI tomorrow. VIX, we should mention, uh, remains below 13. That's in line with the lowest levels of the year so far. Watching the 10-year, it's above 4%. 4% is the level to watch for today's 10-year auction. We're also going to get a speech by the New York Fed president at 315 today. But as you say, the event of the week will be CPI, which could set the tone for trading. If it gets a little too hot, would put the Fed, I think, in the markets in an awkward position where they're all excited about rate cuts. Although what is too hot right now, we've seen quite a strong disinflationary theme. And then bank earnings on Friday, which will also be important with a little more bullishness heading in this time than we've seen in the past. Yeah, in terms of price action, although I noticed downgrades today of Schwab and we did a, get a negative City catalyst yeah. watch uh, of uh, Robinhood on some of this Bitcoin enthusiasm. So we'll keep an eye on it. The next 48 hours are going to be definitely eventful. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.